Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. All hail the victory of the people's struggle against apartheid in South Africa. All those who were involved, the martyrs, the prisoners, the exiles, the strugglers down on the street, large and small people, famous and unknown people who gave oftentimes their life's blood in order to free all of humanity from the scourge of apartheid. So I'm not here to mourn the passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu at the age of 90 overnight in the Republic of South Africa that he fought hard in his own way to free and to make a multiracial innovation experiment which will in time make South Africa the greatest of all African countries. Of that I am sure. I had political differences with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, but the time that I spent in the 1980s, undercover sometimes in South Africa, working as an agent for the African National Congress and its leader, the then prisoner Nelson Mandela, is amongst the proudest chapters of my life. I never met Archbishop Tutu, but I felt him. I felt him in the townships of Soweto and Gugoletu. I felt him in the hatred of the Boers and their police and paramilitary forces uh, that uh, on one occasion memorably chased me into the township of Gugoletu, trapped me, dragged me into a police station and induced me to give blood some of my blood from my nose on the floor of their apartheid police station. I could feel uh, the fear of the Boers and their security apparatus, uh, that they knew that the people's struggle for freedom in South Africa was going to win, and win indeed we did. 
Archbishop Tutu led a wonderful life. He is now, I'm sure, in heaven. He will be remembered forever for the part that he played in the defeat of the hateful fascistic idea of racial separation. May it as an idea burn in hell forever. And insofar as it is practiced anywhere now in the 21st century, may it soon pass. And may those who struggle against it also be victorious. I'm proud of the role that I played, though I have now political differences, quite serious ones, with the government of the African National Congress, the ANC, uh, but I'm still proud to have been with them, to have been one of them during that epic struggle. Uh, the tide of history eventually, unstoppably, comes in, and it came in for the apartheid system. It swept them all away, and it changed everything forever. It hasn't changed life for the people in South Africa nearly enough. The corrupt coterie uh, that has affixed itself to the former revolutionary caste of the African National Congress is condemnable and oftentimes repugnant. I have met people uh, that I knew uh, when their backside was hanging out of their trousers who now have many tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in their bank accounts. I want nothing to do with that. I want to see the liberation of the people of South Africa complete when equality, economic equality, becomes far more of a reality than what we see today. But I have no hesitation at all despite my political differences with Archbishop Tutu of saluting his memory today. But neither can I forswear the opportunity, the responsibility to point at the hypocrites whose syrup is even now gushing over the memory of Desmond Tutu. Because I'm so old, I remember when some of these same people Certainly the same institutions were denouncing the Archbishop as a mouthpiece for the terrorists of the African National Congress. The leading terrorist being Nelson Mandela himself. For younger viewers and listeners, this may come as a surprise, but Britain, the United States, most of the European countries, the so-called much-vaunted international community were all on the side of apartheid in South Africa. White rule in South Africa was their cause right up until the very moment when it was ready to crash down. It's important that you know that. I saw Mrs. Thatcher's lips moving, and I heard her voice speaking when she described Nelson Mandela as nothing other than a terrorist. 
and the rest of us were therefore communists or friends of terrorism. This is important for you to know. And when Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, today poured out his honeyed words, it's important that you know that if Desmond Tutu had been a member of Keir Starmer's Labour Party, he would have been expelled from it, as indeed would Nelson Mandela have had to be expelled from it. Why so? Because both Mandela and Tutu repeatedly and powerfully pointed out that whilst apartheid in South Africa is dead, in Israel-Palestine it is not dead. Whilst boycott, divestment and sanctions speeded the day of the downfall of apartheid in South Africa, so it would be necessary to bring about an end to the suffering of the Palestinian people under illegal occupation. Both Mandela and Tutu described almost daily Israel as an apartheid state. If you did that in Keir Starmer's Labour Party, you would be expelled. So desist, you hypocrites like Keir Starmer and others, in your appreciation of the noble, historic, heroic work of the late Archbishop Utu, to whom I raise my hat. And the last thing I want to say in my monologue is about the issue of the coronavirus. Last week, my monologue gained hundreds of thousands of views, and some people expressed surprise at what they imagined to be a change of mind on my part. But that isn't true and shouldn't have surprised you. I've been against mandatory vaccinations and vaccination passports from the beginning. But I'm not one of the tinfoil hat brigade that denies the existence of the coronavirus, imagines that it's like the cold or the flu, pretends that vaccination won't help stop you from dying. I am a support, I am triple vaccinated. But when facts change, so do my opinions. Don't you change your opinions when the facts change? And here are the facts that I gave you last week and have been amply vindicated over the last seven days. Omicron is the variant we've been waiting for. Omicron is the variant that spreads wider but far less lethally, 70% less likely to put you in the intensive care unit in the hospital. And so I'm still in favor of taking every sensible precaution. I stand four square against any further lockdowns because the cost of further lockdowns, not just economically, but to the mental 
health of the nation, to the social cohesion of the nation, will be far, far greater than any good that they might or would do. So when Boris Johnson weighs things up and issues his pronunciamento tomorrow, I very much hope that it will not be a back to the future order to lock down British society again, because if it is, the British will rise up against it. They will not obey it. They will not follow it. And great harm will thus be caused to our people and to the social cohesion of our country. So be sensible, take precautions, don't run up to people in the street and kiss them with your tongue in their mouth, don't gather in big congregations that you don't need to, but try and live a life that's worth living in 2022. I'll say much more next week, live in London on a normal mother of all talk shows for the new year. But for now, I've got Roger Waters coming up for you. It was one of the great delights of the year for me to get to know better and to befriend the great Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. Just imagine he spoke to you on the moats for quite some considerable time. Here's a little part of it. Roger, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, we have at least two mutual friends in common, and uh, I'd like to speak about both of them. But uh, first up has to be Stephen Donziger, who, as I explained at the beginning of the show, although regular viewers and listeners already know this because Stephen has been on the show several times, uh, this uh, has all been done to him by a private company. No state legal uh, process has been present in this at all. And yet our friend Stephen is this evening, I presume, unless he's appealing and still at large, uh, behind bars in a prison. Explain, if you would, how such a thing could possibly happen. Well, he's not. It's good to see you, George. And you're right. uh, he's not um, behind bars in a prison. Uh, at the very end of the proceedings on Monday, which I attended, uh, they were given, the defence were given one week uh, to make a bail. I think it's a bail appeal um, again, but I'm not, I'm not entirely clear because... Anyway, the, suffice it to say, there is there is one more week in order for his team to make arguments, which they will, and they will be cogent and they will be correct and they will be germane uh, to his predicament and they will make no difference to Judge Presker because she um, doesn't respond to anything but the uh, advice and orders of her paymasters who are Chevron Corporation. Well, there's a remarkable series of conflicts of interest, as indeed there are in the Assange case uh, in this uh, whole affair. But just to summarize, uh, Chevron were ordered to pay billions of dollars to the victims of their 
human and environmental uh, damage in Ecuador. They refuse to pay it, haven't paid a penny, uh, and instead have managed to have the lawyer for the victims of Chevron imprisoned first at home and, unless we're lucky in the next week, uh, in a prison. Yeah. And they did it by finding a tame judge on the uh, Southern Circuit of New York, New York Southern Cir Circuit, Judge Louis A. Kaplan, uh, back in the, back in 2012. And then they hired a, a deep frocked, crooked judge from Ecuador to give evidence against Stephen Donziger and suggest that he had been responsible for fraudulently obtaining uh, the judgment against Chevron. It, which was $9.5 billion, as you rightly point out. It's probably about $12 billion now, with penalties and interest and so on and so forth. Uh, and this man, Guerra, who has since recanted um, his testimony to the civil RICO trial that happened in two, back in 2013, um, uh, based entirely upon Guerra's evidence, um, Stephen was found guilty of being a racketeer, and uh, which of course he isn't. He's a human rights lawyer. He has been ever since he left Harvard Law School 23 years ago. And he's been fighting this fight almost that entire time on behalf of 30,000 indigenous rainforest dwellers in Ecuador, whom I have visited with him in Ecuador a few years ago. So the whole thing is completely trumped up and iniquitous. And you're completely correct in saying um, that the uh, district attorney or the, sorry, the US attorney in the Southern District of New York um, refused to prosecute him on the recent charade, which was a contempt of court case where he was held in contempt because he refused to hand over his laptop computer and his iPhone to Chevron Corporation on the grounds that it um, contravened client privilege with 30,000 poor Ecuadorian people who still need his help. And they, and they had him disbarred, even though when the disbarment went to a referee, he's called John Horn, and um, Horan, I think, John Horan, and he was the referee. His recommendation after a three-day hearing in New York City was that Stephen Donziger's license to practice law should be immediately returned to him. And the whole thing should be struck from his record because, in his opinion, the referee, uh, Donziger, was innocent of any wrongdoing. So there we go. It's, well, I mean, uh, Joseph Heller, uh, Catch-22, couldn't encapsulate uh, that story. Uh, if Kafka himself could not uh, do so. Here is the lawyer for the people whose lives were ruined, who were granted almost $10 billion in compensation from an oil company. And that oil company has managed to get the lawyer for the 30,000 people locked up not in Ecuador, no disrespect intended to Ecuador, but in the United States. Now, in a sane world, Chevron's name would be mud, its share price crashing, and every liberal and progressive, the New York Times would be running this on their 
front page, it would be, it would be pussy hat heaven. All the liberals would be out on the streets. Where are they? Let's not accuse the New York Times of being either liberal or progressive, George, or they'll think this is a comedy show. You know, obviously they're not. They, 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 they labour under the yoke of the ruling class and the powers that be and the status quo and all of that. But it is interesting that this is becoming more and more visible and support for Stephen Donziger all over the world is growing hand over fist. So how long the US um, Department of Justice and the US judiciary in general will be able to handle the embarrassment of Louis A. Kaplan and Loretta Preska, who are federal judges on the, in, the, in the Southern District of New York. The embarrassment of them being who and what they are, I don't know, but I hope for not much longer. And certainly the rumblings are beginning to be just discernible in the DOJ. So we may see some movement. This story is not over. My, my great hope, it's not my belief, because they are so entrenched, these corrupt officials, and they have such enormous power. Do you know, you know if you're appointed as a federal judge, you can never be removed, is the law of the United States. It doesn't matter what you do, it's for life. What is the a strange thing for an appointee. This is not an elected. There's nobody is elected to become to sit on the federal bench. So, anyway, well, let's um, segue uh, to another bench uh, yeah. closer to home. Uh, yeah. Julian Assange has been through uh, a process, although more judicial on the face of it, no less Kafkaesque uh, than uh, Stephen. And he is facing n not six months in jail, uh, but the rest of his life. In fact, four lifetimes, uh, 145 years in, uh, in a Guantanamo uh, super prison uh, in Colorado. Uh, and yet the same, not the New York Times, but if you like, their British equivalents still appear to be entirely unmoved by it. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Are we living in great times, George, where we, the people, get to notice that what we're looking at is a house of cards and that every single one of those cards that builds that flimsy pyramid that, it, that we call the powers that be or the status quo or our governments... Um, is beginning to bend and buckle. Um, and it's becoming more and more obvious to more and more of us that the emperor has no clothes, that, that this system that we live under, capitalist system in the West, makes no sense, i.e. a world where we take no notice of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from Paris in 1948 or from 1789 in Paris. We take no, we pay lip service to it, but we don't act upon it at all, or certainly our governments don't. And I think we, the people, are beginning to say, whoa, hold on a minute, this, is, this just is wrong, you know? And um, so the worm is turning, if I may refer to myself as a worm. <laughs> and and, and, and we, will, we will have our way at the end of the day. Now, whether we do it in time to save Stephen, his six months of stir, 
and to save Julian Assange's life, because that's what they're doing. They're imposing, they're trying to impose a death sentence on our friend Julian, one of the great heroes of our time, one of the very few, very, very truthful, honest and brilliant publishers and journalists that we have. He is our fourth estate. He is the check and balance against uh, the malfeasance of errant authority. Julian Assange embodies it. And yet they've, they've, they've managed to get large numbers of the general public, as well as themselves, to wrinkle their noses by smearing him with terrible slanders about his sex life or his personal cleanliness or whatever it might be. Julian Assange is a great hero and we must build statues to him. Indeed. Not just free him. But honour him. He's, he's a world historic figure. I, I, I agree entirely with that. But here's an irony. Uh, yeah. The, the, the liberal press, including the New York Times and The Guardian uh, and others around the world, are this evening running their presses, if presses still run, I don't know, uh, exposing the horrific, obscene levels of wealth and corruption in the Pandora's box revelations. Some right. of the mightiest figures in the land, in the world, are, uh, are revealed to be even more rotten than we already thought that they were. This information has been leaked to these newspapers in the way that information even more important about war crimes and the rest were leaked to WikiLeaks. They have been published by these great newspapers as they were published by WikiLeaks. Yet the publisher of WikiLeaks faces 145 years and the publishers of the Pandora's box will be looking to receive uh, journalistic awards at the end of this year. How do we square well, this? Pulitzer cool surprises for the lot of them, obviously. Well, you know, they've, 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 shown, they've come back into line uh, in Julian's case. They've gone... Oh, maybe if we do exactly as we're told from now, i.e. if we never publish a word about Julian Assange and how appallingly badly or or voice the opinion that this is a total travesty of justice or what, maybe that we can go on doing what it is that we do, which is to serve them. So, so they are servants of the rich and powerful, all of them. I make no, I make, and I make no bones about calling the Manchester Guardian that as well. Having having been looking at that paper since I was a wee lad, you know. So, um, how how do you explain the paradox? The whole thing is upside down. We're living in in Alice's Wonderland. We're down the rabbit hole. Nothing makes any sense. It gets curiouser and curiouser. Um, but what, what can we do about it? We can do what you're doing and what I try and do as well, is we shout about it, stand on the rooftops and shout as loud as we can and call them the crooked assholes that they are, our leaders, that they won't stand up and do what is right. You know, I've often told this story about people say, how did you develop these opinions? My mother 
when I was 13 years old, struggling with something or other, she sat me down and she said, you know, Roger, through your whole life, you're going to be faced with difficult decisions to make about um, about um, complex problems and whatever. My advice to you is study whatever it may be from all sides that you can. Just before I came here and got on the Zoom link with you, I was reading as much as I could about the Pandora revelations which are coming out. I haven't got very far because it's thousands of pages, apparently. Anyway, my mother said to me, study it, listen to other opinions, really verse yourself in it. When you've done that, you've done all the heavy lifting, lifting, sorry, the, the, the end bit is the easiest thing in the world. And I went, well, what's that, mum? And she said, do the right thing. Well, you've certainly uh, done that. Let's go... No, but they don't... It wouldn't occur to them to do the right thing. They oh, do no. the expedient thing no, from no, their no. point of view, which is to maintain power and blah, blah, blah. But they don't... They never do the right thing. So that's a big No, difference. no, they, they, they are doing the right thing by their immoral uh, selves. Now, you made the point that how long can the US justice system ignore this elephant in the room? of a private oil company rampaging through their legal system. Isn't the same true now on the Biden administration in persisting with their appeal uh, against the refusal to extradite Julian Assange? After all, talk about a case turning sour. Uh, um, in fact, foul, never mind sour, the... Top witnesses are discredited. Uh, the illegal spying activities that spied on me, no doubt you, spied on Julian 24-7, even in the toilet in the Ecuador embassy, uh, the end user of that uh, illegally obtained uh, material, the spying on Julian's privileged conversations with his own lawyers, about this very case uh, that would be likely to come down the track. I mean, time does not allow me to adumbrate all the reasons why not only this case should be thrown out of court in England, but should be discontinued in Washington. Do you think there's any prospect of the Biden administration being so embarrassed by all this? After all, it was Donald Trump's work. Why not drop it? Well... Uh, yes, I do believe that there is a possibility that that might happen because these people are pragmatic, if nothing else. Uh, and certainly if Joe Biden or, or Joe Biden's advisors or Merrick Garland, for instance, who's the attorney general, as you know, in the United States now, if it suddenly dawned on them that maybe actually this might be to their advantage and that they could make some political hay out of it or that it was getting so nasty, the smell was so disgusting that it was going to leave it a taste on them and, and, and harm their reputations, then they would. Would Joe Biden do this because it's the right thing to do? No. Joe Biden couldn't give a couldn't care less about the right thing or about human rights or anything else. He is a pragmatic professional politician. You only have to look at his record over the last 50. Don't forget, Joe Biden wrote the Patriot Act more or less single-handedly. And it, and it was never and it failed to become part of, le, of their legislature or legislation until 9-11, when suddenly it was brought out of the closet and they dusted it. Over. 
this is the, <laughs> this thing young Biden wrote in 1994 or whenever it was. It was. So yeah, there is a chance, and I'm, I cling to the possibility that 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 Biden will free us, will stop the extradition proceedings. Because if Biden drops the extradition proceedings, the British government won't be able to keep Julian Assange in prison any longer. They won't have a single prop to continue that disgusting um, fact, which it is now. He's been in prison for nearly three years, for God's sake, in yeah. Belmarsh prison. I know you know all this, but... So yeah, I I do believe I do believe that people like you and me, and Julian Assange, and Stephen Donziger, and Craig Murray, and all the rest of us, can have some effect on them. I agree. And, and they, I look forward. Look, look to, what uh, happened at sorry. Look what happened at the Labour Party conference last week, where the, where Labour Party members turn round in England at their annual conference. And produce this document where they where they advocate the applying of sanctions to the state of Israel on the grounds that it's apartheid. How can Keir Starmer not have resigned? I don't get any. I know I'm changing the subject. No, but. you're not. You really are not. Uh, it was uh, extraordinary. The Labour Party passed a policy which is uh, illegal under the party's rules. It's illegal to call Israel an apartheid state. You get auto-expelled for it. Yet the Labour conference passed a resolution calling it just that. Well, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably an apartheid duck. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Roger Waters. Hats off to you. You are one of the heroes of our age. Thank you for thank you, uh, thank you joining for us. Well, I don't know about you. I thought that was a fantastic interview and the ending was hilarious. I thought that Roger was reaching back for his guitar. I was really hoping that he was, but it was to tie the kafia around his neck. We'll uh, keep interviewing Roger, I'm sure, God willing, in the course of 2022. Or maybe we'll stop once Julian Assange is free and we can have him in the studio uh, for the accolades that he deserves. Stephen Donziger, of course, is now released from prison, but still under house arrest. And all of it, a, a private process. None of it part of the US justice system. Absolutely extraordinary. Now, after the news, Uh, with Jamie Lowe at the hour, we'll be talking with Professor Sir John Curtis, uh, the doyen of sophologists and the king, the dean, certainly, of the political scientists. He helped us through a lot of politics in the course of the last year. Have you noticed that the worst slanderers never call the show? They'd come and have a go if only they were remotely hard enough. No phone calls tonight, but there will be next Sunday But we can take your tweets and your emails, and there's a poll running. Was the BBC licence fee worth it for you in 2021? It's a simple question, yes or no. Uh, The campaign against the licence fee and for the breaking up of the BBC is something that is going to occupy me in the course of the next 12 months because personally, I have just had it with the BBC. I will never appear on it again, even if they 
crawled up my drive and begged me to. And I don't think that we should be forced to pay for it. But you can have your say on the poll, which is running now on my Twitter uh, handle, on my Telegram channel, and on my YouTube channel. And do subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already done so. Now, I'll tell you, I get lots of good guests. They're almost all good. Some are better than others. I wasn't that much looking forward to Mohammed Marandi from the University of Tehran. But I'll tell you what, by the time the interview finished, I knew that it would be flying round the internet for many months to come. And indeed it did, racking up almost a record number of views. Here he is, Professor Mohammed Marandi of the University of Tehran. Well, our program is a graduate studies program. We have both an MA as well as a PhD program. It's been going, the MA program has been going on for roughly 16 years now. And I think the PhD program, 12, 13 years. So we've had lots of students and lots of graduates, and some of them are now professors, others are abroad. Some are, most are in Iran doing work in different places at research institutes, media, and uh, other places as well. And are you any closer to understanding the United States of America and why it seems to be bent on war around the world? Well, the United States is a very, very complicated country, and that's one reason or the main reason why uh, we have a, an American studies program. It is obviously of great concern for Iranians, how the United States behaves and why it behaves in such a manner. So we at the University of Tehran set up this program so that people in Iran could have a better understanding. Of course, there are many programs in Iran that are linked to American studies. Almost all, univers all universities, I think, in Iran have English departments, uh, most important universities, if not all of them have international relations, politics. So uh, America, the United States is studied in one form or another in Iran, whether it's in the social sciences, fine arts, cinema, or the American studies program as uh, I'm involved with. Very interesting. Now, uh, let's, uh, we'll come back to America uh, indubitably, but uh, this week, uh, the new Prime Minister of Israel said he was ready for war uh, with your country. I happen to know that your country is ready for war with him if he starts one. So how serious is this? As we speak, I have not heard anyone take him seriously in Iran. Israel is a very small country. Half the population is Palestinian and they're subjugated. So the Israeli regime has to spend a lot of energy keeping these people uh, down. Uh, the Israelis have not done well in their war with Gaza, a small landlocked surrounded population, which is half, which is starving of medicine and electricity and clean water. 
yet uh, they held their own. The, the Israelis did not dare to enter Gaza despite killing uh, large numbers of innocent civilians. And the Gazans, despite the fact that their missile technology, which is new to them, is still uh, not highly developed. Many of their missiles did get through the so-called Iron Dome. So when the Israeli regime fails against the uh, subjugated people of Gaza, uh, who are living in the, as we all have heard many times, the largest concentration camp on this planet, they're not really in a position to talk much about uh, a war against Iran. If the Israelis strike Iran, uh, the, the Israel, Israel is a small country. Iran would counterstrike with probably hundreds, if not thousands, of missiles. And uh, I don't really think the Israelis want that. Why say it then? I mean, uh, you know, there's a limit to how much uh, the school bully can continue to cow people merely by issuing threats. Uh, now and again, he's got to live up to the threats. I think there are probably two things that come to mind uh, and seem to make a lot of sense right now. One is internal politics. Uh, there, Israel is a right wing. The, the, the country has turned to the right. It's very right wing. And the country is also deeply divided. The Netanyahu supporters would want to bring down this government as soon as possible. Both compete to look tough in the eyes of, as I said, a very right-wing Israeli society. The second, I think, is uh, the legacy of arrogance. They've been uh, the bully on the block, as you've pointed out, for a very long period of time, but the world has changed. Lebanon has changed. Hezbollah is a very powerful force as soon as the Israelis began uh, firing sh shells into Lebanon and bombing the country that Hezbollah retaliated and the Israelis stopped. In, the same is true in Gaza. And of course, we see Yemen on the rise. We see Syria uh, surviving this onslaught uh, of extremists and tens of thousands of foreign fighters brought into the country by its antagonists, and the Israelis were a part of that. So we sort of see the tide turning against the Israeli regime, but this legacy of arrogance, I think, is still very much a part of the culture of this apartheid state. Aren't they implicitly, though, threatening uh, you and indeed others uh, with America's army? They're hoping yes, they can draw the United States into a conflict. Yes, everyone in this region allied to the United States wants to use the Americans as their armed forces, whether it's the Israelis or the Saudis or the Emiratis. But I think uh, here, too, the world has changed dramatically. The United States in 2001 was the superpower, and we all recall how easily they went into Afghanistan and how easily they went into Iraq, despite all the anti-war protests, such as the one in London, which I participated in, by the way. But the United States back then was the sole superpower. It had a lot of uh, support, unfortunately, and uh, a lot of uh, material capability and uh, economic resources to, to use in these wars. But the United States is, 
after spending almost, I don't know, maybe nine, ten trillion dollars now, they are withdrawing from Afghanistan, they're cutting costs in Iraq. This is a very different United States. And on the other hand, in 2001, uh, China was a very different country. Russia was a very different country. These, these Russia had just begun to emerge from the ashes of the post-Soviet Union era, and China was just beginning to emerge. So now the United States has very powerful rivals. The United States is badly weakened because of its own foolishness in this region. And Iran, which was an isolated country surrounded to the west by Saddam Hussein and to the east by the Taliban, which the Americans actually helped bring to power, the Americans and the Saudis, which that's a, a story in itself. Uh, it's now the most influential country in, in West Asia. Iran has allies in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, and uh, Iran's antagonists, US allies, are on the back foot. The Saudis are tired of war, the Israeli regime we've discussed. So the situation is very different from before. Indeed so. Uh, and this is the law of unintended consequences again, isn't it? Uh, That's exactly they, true. They have, uh, they have pushed Russia and China very much uh, close together, economically, in terms of currency, and perhaps most importantly, militarily, the interoperability, joint uh, war games, and fantastic uh, development of, of uh, weapon systems, particularly in Russia, uh, anti-aircraft, uh, and also now uh, jet fighter technology, which is not just cutting edge, but out of sight of uh, other countries. Uh, and they've made uh, this block of China and Russia. And now uh, they've made a block of China, Russia, and Iran. And Iran already has, as you said, all these allies right across that crescent from Iran, through Iraq, into Syria, into Lebanon. Uh, it, is foreign policy run by idiots in the West? Definitely. I, I can't see uh, any other explanation. The Iran has, for hundreds of years, been oriented towards the West because they've dominated this country. The second language here is English. At all universities, we study English as our second language. Most of our textbooks are translations from English uh, textbooks. Uh, Many young people go to English-speaking countries to get their PhDs or to, to continue their studies. But when the United States constantly, and, and when its allies constantly antagonize Iran, then gradually you see Iran shift away from the United States and Europe. We see that now China is much more of an important trading partner for Iran than Western countries. So when Western countries sanction the country, they impose maximum pressure camp, uh, and maximum pressure sanctions to, to make ordinary people suffer as much as possible. Not only does that create hatred and contempt among politicians and the population, but it also creates an incentive for Iran to move towards those countries that 
open their doors and carry out trade or behave in a friendly manner. And that, of course, includes countries like Russia and China. And the same is true for China and Russia. When the United States and the Europeans try to isolate China, then they have a incentive to move closer towards Iran and Iran's allies. And the same is true with Russia. So the fools in the White House, as well as the fools in Western capitals, just like the fools in Tel Aviv, I think they make many of their decisions based upon this tradition of arrogance, this feeling of being exceptional, but they don't have the power that they once have. They don't have the capabilities that they once have. And I think we're seeing sort of multiple Suez moments uh, as we move along during the last few years. And I think in the months and years ahead, we'll be seeing more of that. Now, you have a new president uh, described normally as hardline. Uh, you're in talks in Vienna. Process hasn't finished. Uh, do you expect the United States to re-enter uh, the nuclear deal? The reason why they call the new president in Western countries a hardliner is because he is very... Uh, he's adamant that Iran's sovereignty must be preserved. No one believes that he's being hardlined towards Argentina or Brazil or Bolivia or Venezuela or South Africa or Morocco or India or China. The issue is the United States. And the problem is that the United States is not willing to treat Iran as an equal country. It's not willing to treat the Iranian people with respect. And this, a good example of this was the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015. After the deal, under Obama, the United States failed to abide by its commitments, whereas Iran did. Under Trump, the United States tore the agreement. And under Biden, the United States is still pursuing Trump's policies. And then recently in Vienna, during the negotiations, the Americans and the Europeans they demanded new concessions, and they also demanded that many of the sanctions that were imposed after the deal, that violate the deal, in, in the, the spirit of the deal, that they remain in place and that Iran uh, adds new, uh, a new, con new um, uh, conditions are yeah. imposed upon Iran in order for the deal to be implemented. And that's not the, the JCPOA. So, when the United States treats Iran as such, then I, I, I find it very difficult for us to move back to the JCPOA, JCPOA or the nuclear deal under these circumstances. If the Americans and the Europeans continue to expect that Iran give more than, was that, than what was already agreed upon, which is appeasement, I don't think we're going to have a deal because I don't see Iran appeasing the United States or the Europeans. And if you don't have a deal, you'll continue to enrich uranium uh, outside of the terms of the original deal, correct? Absolutely. Iran has gone back to the NPT and the regulations within the IAEA. So Iran is allowed to do what it's doing today within the framework of international law but not within the framework of the nuclear deal. But if the other side does not abide by the deal, then Iran is not going to abide by its commitments either. So Iran is going to develop its enrichment program, it's going to develop its nuclear program as far as possible within the framework of international law. And there's also another element to it. 
while Iranians are suffering, and there is no doubt that Iranians are suffering, the Americans and the Europeans are trying to make ordinary Iranians suffer as much as possible. This is a, this is a war against ordinary people, these sanctions. However, Obama himself, when he initiated these maximum pressure sanctions, it wasn't Trump who started this, it was Obama. And then there was a deal, and then we got to Trump. When Obama signed, the, after the United States signed the JCPOA, along with Iran and other countries, because the United States accepted Iran's right to enrichment, then the Iranians agreed to talk, and then we had the deal. When he faced criticism for signing the deal, Obama himself said, these sanctions will not last forever. Gradually, the, the sanctions regime will fall apart. And I wanted to sign a deal before that process began. So this is something that Obama himself admitted. The Iranians are going are already passing through the worst of these sanctions. And it is gradually finding new partners, also enabling or finding the, the capability inside the country to, over, to, to overcome some of the problems that were created by the sanctions. It's still tough, but it's no longer as bad as it was two, three years ago. So as Russia and China and other countries rise, as Iran rises further, as the United States and its allies find it more difficult, the sanctions regime is going to derode even more swiftly. So time is not on the side of the Americans or the Europeans, but still it's that arrogance that, that prevents them from behaving sensibly, signing the deal, going back to 2015, and engaging with Iran as a normal country. It's not possible for them, it seems, at least at the moment. It's still 88% of you who don't think the BBC was worth it in 2021. And if you look at the comments, probably for much longer than that. Coming up, we've got the singing Scotsman, that's right, Kenny, whom we stumbled on entirely by accident, and the great Gideon Levy, the finest Israeli of them all from Haaretz newspaper. But throughout the year, I spoke oftentimes to Professor Sir John Curtis, the Dean of Sophologists, the best social political scientist of them all. I don't agree with him on many things, but he's a fascinating guest. And we talked to him about the strange case of Alex Salmon who once was king of Scotland and then ended up in the dock, being acquitted, running for election and failing miserably. Is it all over for Alex or is he the ghost of what the SNP used to be? Let's have a look at what Sir John had to say. Professor Sir John, thank you for joining us again this evening. Let's start with the Alba, if we can. Uh, everyone's saying now, John, that, well, they knew this was coming. It was the most uh, predictable uh, event uh, that, there, that, that could be imagined, but I didn't predict it. And I get the impression uh, from the rather headless chicken way uh, that the SNP leaders uh, at first reacted that they weren't expecting it either. What about you? Well, we certainly knew that there would be an attempt to run a party list with a view to trying to persuade people to vote for the SNP for this party 
on the list vote instead of voting for the SNP for reasons we can go into if you want in a moment. Um, Dave Thompson, the former uh, SNP MSP, set that party up back in the autumn. Indeed, it was all ready to fight the election under, if I remember rightly, the banner of alliance for uh, independence. So the, 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 the stratagem that Alex Salmon has decided to lead was a stratagem that was widely known. There had been some suggestions for quite a while that maybe Mr. Salmond would join Mr. Thompson's setup. But uh, in the end, he's not decided to, he's decided to strike on his own. So the fact that something like this was, was going on within the nationalist movement was pretty widely known. But you're right, we certainly didn't know whether or not Mr. Salmond would be the person who'd end up leading it. Now, I laid out uh, three possible, there may be more than three, three possible outcomes from this. One that the two wings uh, or two cheeks <laughs> of the same backside, as some of us would have it, of the nationalist movement will eat each other, damage their cause, uh, and therefore both fail. A second is that a super majority of MSPs is obtained, uh, albeit on a very much lower share of the vote. And a third is that the whole affair so discredits the process that it ends up strengthening Boris Johnson's refusal to grant a second referendum. These were the three I canvassed. You may have others, Professor. Well, uh, the three you suggest are certainly important, and they're all three possible outcomes of this process. I would simply add a fourth because I think this then takes us to the heart of the debate that's been going inside the nationalist movement, at least so far as the tactics for the election is concerned, which is that Mr. Salmond might fail to pick up very much. He doesn't add uh, uh, or create a supermajority, but along the way, he does just well enough to deny the SNP uh, the chances of being able to get an overall majority on their own. Because although Mr. Salmond is right, and it's, you know, the, the, the heart of all of this, you have to understand a little bit about the Scottish electoral system. We have an electoral system in Scotland whereby 73 MSPs are elected directly in the constituencies, um, but then there are another uh, 56 which are elected from uh, party lists in each of eight regions. But these lists of MSPs are allocated via a proportional representation formula such that the total number of MSPs, both constituency and list, is as proportionate as possible to uh, the outcome on the list vote. Now, what this could mean, and it certainly this is what happened to the SNP back in 2016 at the last election, it can mean that if you do really, really well in the constituencies, um, you end up with so many constituency MSPs that the, um, the proportional uh, calculation says, oh, you've already got your just desserts, maybe indeed you've got more than your just desserts proportionally, therefore you're not going to get more uh, list MSPs, even though the, you may be way, way ahead uh, on the list vote. Um, and that therefore the argument has been within the nationalist movement that in order to uh, overcome this, we basically we should game the system by uh, creating a separate party 
and running it only on the list, persuading people to vote for the SNP on the constituency, but for this other party on the list. And that indeed, you know, that's exactly what Alexander is trying to do. Nothing new by this, by this, by the way. There were a lot of suggestions back in the days when the Labour Party dominated Scottish politics that perhaps the co-op party should be used in order to uh, create a separate list party. Uh, this is basically trying uh, to game the system. Now, although the SNP, for the most part, doesn't seem to rely on list MSPs, and given where the polls are at at the moment, are unlikely to be picked up very much in the way of list MSPs, the polls are just at that point where the SNP might still pick up two or three list MSPs, most obviously in the south of Scotland or in the Highlands, and those two or three could just be critical to the SNP getting the overall majority. So here we, get, we come into an argument about which is going to matter more to Boris Johnson, assuming either of them transfers. Is Boris Johnson going to be more likely to feel that he needs to give way when there is a supermajority achieved by gaming the electoral system, um, even though that supermajority consists of MSPs from what in this instance would be three parties, the SNP, the Greens and, uh, and Haluba, um, or would he be more concerned about the SNP having an overall majority on their own, uh, which in which instance uh, then the precedent of 2011 might be regarded as somewhat pressing for the unions because in 2011 the SNP got an overall majority and in the wake of that David Cameron then paved the way for the 2014 referendum. So it depends on which you think is the more important objective to be achieved so far as the nationalist movement is concerned. But I mean that said of course that's the narrow calculation, you're right, the big calculation is what does all of this do for support for independence in the first place. Now one direction I could say to look, well, actually, you know, support for independence is about 50 percent. It's been pretty solidly there for quite a while now. And eight, about 87 percent of the people who are in favour of independence are currently minded to vote for the SNP. This looks like a something that's not necessarily going to be unstudied by a spat between uh, Mr. Sturgeon, uh, Ms. Sturgeon and Mr. Summer. Um, but, you know, there's no guarantee of that. And undoubtedly, the crucial advantage that the nationalist movement have had hitherto in Scotland is that it was effectively united. The SNP basically was the only party for the most part representing nationalism in Scotland, albeit with a bit of an appendage for the Greens. In contrast, the unionists are seriously divided. We saw this again in the last 24 hours. Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, putting out a call to Labour and Democrats, let's get together, uh, suggesting perhaps that indeed they should be trying to gain the system by colluding and coming to some form of electoral power. Well, that got rebuffed pretty quickly. And the, you know, the unionists are, are divided. They don't agree about what their tactics should be, etc., etc. So what we've now got on the nationalist movement, in a sense, is now uh, that unity is, is at risk of being fractured and there's a disagreement about the tactics. So... Uh, to that extent, at least, Alexander's challenge certainly takes away one of the strategic advantages, or at least puts at risk, one of the strategic advantages that the nationalists currently have north of the border. Just to illustrate uh, one of your earlier points there, in 2003, in central Scotland, Labour got 106,000 votes on the regional list and gained zero seats because they had done so well in yep. the constituencies. Whereas the old age pensioners party 
got a seat with 17,000 votes. And the Scottish Socialist Party, with Alba's newest recruit, Tommy Sheridan, uh, got a seat on 19,000. This makes the point, doesn't it, about the danger of voting uh, both votes SNP, both votes Tory, both votes Labour. Oh yeah, I mean there is there, there is no doubt that um, that's precisely the scenario that uh, Alex Salmond is pointing to, and that indeed, if given now nowadays the Conservatives and Labour Party are primarily dependent on list seats, then uh, if Alex Salmond were to succeed in getting securing representation, he would probably gain more of those seats at the expense of uh, the opposition parties than you would the SNP. Though in truth, what you're doing when you're doing this, you have to guess which party is going to be the party that would otherwise get the seventh seat that you might otherwise pick up. And that can often be very difficult to calculate. And the point I just come back to, yes, in six of the regions at the moment in Scotland, um, the calculation that Mr. Salmond is, is, is making does uh, certainly is quite pressing. But there are two other regions where it doesn't. There are two regions where the SNP might well need, uh, the list vote might well make a difference. And to that extent, at least, I guess if Mr. Salmond were really trying to gain the system to the maximum advantage of the nationalist movement as a whole, Perhaps he might stand in six of the eight regions, but not stand in the two where the SNP have a chance. However, maybe what's going on here, and you've alluded to this in your in your various alternatives, maybe what's going on here is that, of course, Mr. Salmon doesn't necessarily want the SNP to get an overall majority, because, of course, if the SNP gets an overall majority, then it will be able to determine what tactics it deploys vis-a-vis -vis the UK government, what it tries to do if the UK government says no to referendum, etc. It will not have to accommodate the Greens and or Mr. Salmond. Perhaps Mr. Salmond actually really wants to be in a situation which he says, the kingmaker, i.e. somebody uh, to whom Ms. Sturgeon has to look for support in order to be able to pursue a national strategy. Now, that's up to Mr. Salmond to... Uh, 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 deny or uh, or otherwise whether or not that's the case, but perhaps at least you can see why maybe that's one of the reasons why the SNP are not very keen on his strategy. The Green Party, what I call the SNP's gardening section, uh, as uh, uh, clinging to the SNP like moss on a on a dike, uh, they are in a way the first losers from Alex Salmond's move, aren't they? Because uh, they only get the five seats they have in Holyrood because SNP supporters in the first vote give them uh, votes uh, in the second. And Salmond is likely to outgun them, don't you think? Well, yes and no, George. Um, I think the honest truth is that there's a, there's a bit of a two-way traffic here, i.e. that some of the people who would vote for the Greens if the Greens were to stand in their constituency vote for the SNP because they can't vote for the Greens. So the truth is, I think the SNP gets boosted in the constituencies by the Greens not standing uh, uh, where they don't, and they did fight three constituencies last time. Uh, and yes, the Greens do profit from the fact that some people vote strategically for them. That said, however, uh, one interesting piece of analysis that's going to actually come out on my website tomorrow uh, does point out that the kind of people 
who are most likely to say that they think favorably about Mr. Salmond, and the truth is that's very much a minority of voters in Scotland, those voters tend to be at the more socially conservative end of the nationalist coalition. They're disproportionately people who voted leave in the 2016 referendum. And these are not the kind of people who, for the most part, are inclined to vote for the relatively socially progressive Greens. So you might well find that actually the people who are willing to vote for Mr. Salmond on the list vote are not necessarily the same people who are willing to vote tactically for the Greens. Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, I said earlier that that Salmon so far has picked up the kind of rougher trade, the rough trade end of the uh, nationalist movement. Uh, you may or may not agree with that characterization, but uh, how do you characterize uh, the kind of people who've gone over to Salmon and what kind of uh, level of defection do you expect? Well, I think that the truth is what we're looking at are people, for the most part, who've been pretty well associated with that someone for a while. Um, and their views uh, and their previous positioning reflects the division that there has been within the SNP for some weeks or months. There are essentially two crucial issues. The first is, do you trust Ms Sturgeon to pursue holding another referendum with the zeal and the ardor and uh, the resilience that you think is necessary. These are people who were rather disenchanted by the fact that back in March 2017, Ms Sturgeon called for a re another referendum, got the Scottish Parliament to vote for one, for one, but then in the wake of the outcome of the 2017 UK general election when the SNP lost seats, then marched uh, troops back down again. These are people who think that at the end of the day, Ms Sturgeon is more interested in remaining First Minister of Scotland than she is at pursuing independence. So they're, they're, they're impatient with her. The second uh, issue that divides most of these people are that they are the people who are concerned about the Scottish government's proposals whereby uh, trans people, particularly trans women, uh, are able to uh, reassign their agenda uh, on the basis of their um, identity. They don't require anything in the way of uh, medical evidence, if you think that's relevant at all, uh, for the fact that they've changed their, their gender. Um, and uh, these are people who think that this perhaps is a step too far and is in particular putting at risk the, the rights that have been gained by some women. Uh, so that, those are the two crucial true divisions. And they also, these also seem to be people who perhaps are not quite, do not necessarily feel that re-entering the European Union is necessarily quite as important for an independent Scotland as certainly the SNP thinks. So they, you know, these are these are the fault lines. These are fault lines that have been nagging away at the SNP for quite a while. What Mr. Salmond has done is to bring this out in the open. What is less clear is just how many people are actually willing to defect to the party to do this. He's obviously going to pick up some. I suspect, however, for the most part, you know, this is a relatively uh, uh, minority group within the SNP, or at least minority groups so far as willing actually to defect. And certainly when you look at um, SNP voters, only about 16% think favourably of Mr Salmond, over 90% of them think favourably of Ms Sturgeon. Forgive me, I said last, but if you will, answer me this one. Why, why would a nationalist populist party like the SNP, uh, go off at that tangent that you have just ably described. Uh, for example, their lists have to be topped 
by an ethnic minority or a disabled person. Uh, the gender recognition thing that you talked about, uh, the hate crime bill and so on. These, these seem to cut across uh, the, uh, you might say, tunnel vision that a nationalist populist uh, coalition uh, ought normally or uh, would be expected normally to be pursuing. Well, yes, but I think, you know, th this is a reminder to us, George, that um, the SNP has always been a broad church when it comes to anything other than independence. There are people in the party who are on the centre-right, who probably would be in the Conservatives, but for their belief in independence. And there are those who regard themselves as social democrats. Equally, there are plenty of social liberals, but there are also some social conservatives. And certainly when it comes to Brexit, for example, there has always been a body of SNP support that has felt that what's the point of liberating ourselves from London only to put ourselves in chains from Brussels? What we've seen with the SNP in government is that that, that, that set of issues, you know, it's uh, Brexit, it is trans rights, indeed it is aspects of the, of the hate crime bill that you mentioned that begins to fracture the coalition because when it comes to these kinds of issues, the fact that you are in, uh, in favour of independence doesn't necessarily mean to say that you agree with the stance that's been taken by the SNP government on these other issues. The endless agony of the captive Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip as referred to earlier, and indeed by David Cameron in the House of Commons as the largest prison camp on the earth, where millions of people in a tiny piece of land are entirely closed off from the world, a ghetto of enormous proportions. Now, Gideon Levy is one of those Israelis who bravely stands up to the prevailing orthodoxy. And when Gaza was again being attacked, as it is periodically, always and forever, he spoke to us here on the mother of all talk shows. It was a truly memorable interview. Take a look. I wonder if you would describe to the audience what the atmosphere is like in Israel in the midst of this carnage. First of all, George, it's always an honor for me to be in your show. I must say, Thank you, sir. one of the very few courageous shows who says the truth, who fights for the truth, who, which fights also for justice. Thank you. Now, there is this unbelievable gap between what's going on in Israel and what's going on right now when we talk in Gaza. I must remind you, George, that if I would go now freely with my car from my home in Tel Aviv to Gaza, it would take me like one hour, one hour and 15. That's the whole distance. And here in Tel Aviv, life is almost normal. I don't want to say it's normal because we went through many sirens in the last days. But finally, it's almost normal while one and hour distance from here, it is really a nightmare. I get so many videos from Gaza, which I never saw before, never saw before. Dead bodies of children, really massacres. It's, it's unbelievable, and we know nothing about it. Israel is ignoring it, by the way. If you ask most of the Israelis, they are not 
exposed to those images. They know nothing. They don't want to know anything. Gideon, was I right in ascribing this latest frenzy in part to the travails of the Prime Minister Netanyahu? I tell you, George, yes and no, because both of us are old enough to remember that those things happened before Netanyahu and unfortunately will happen after Netanyahu. So yes, Netanyahu carries a lot of responsibility about it, but I wouldn't put it only on Netanyahu's uh, policies, because this is Israel, it's not Netanyahu, it is Israel. That's the brutal policy of Israel, and if you go backwards, you see that almost all Israeli prime ministers did the same. So to put it only on Netanyahu is, in a way, to make our life easier, because once we'll get rid of Netanyahu, things will become better. No, they will not become better. What's the aim of this? It cannot be. Uh, this is not an era in which uh, the, uh, the complete destruction of every Palestinian in Gaza uh, can be achieved if that was the goal uh, of those who are carrying out this crime. Uh, so what is the aim? What is the end game? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First of all, nobody knows what is the end game because there is no end game. As you remember, it was Henry Kissinger who said once that Israel does not have a foreign policy. Everything is domestic policy. You can say the same about the defense policy of Israel. By the end of the day, it is about showing the Israelis that here we have beaten them, we have humiliated them, we are the heroes. This is the end game in a way. Yes, there is a problem with Hamas. Israel faces a problem with Hamas. I don't want to ignore it. But Israel never tried an alternative way but living on the sword, but using its power with a ruthless way, really, without any borders. And the result you can see in the streets of Gaza, tens of children, tens of children are dead right now. Hundreds of thousands of people are 
looking not the first time in their life, maybe second, third time in their life, for a place to hide, totally helpless. It's, it's heartbreaking. We are uh, also, also, sadly, uh, both old enough uh, to remember uh, the period in which Hamas did not exist. And the lives of the people in Gaza and under occupation and in the camps in the countries alongside Israel uh, were not very much uh, better. So uh, whilst I'm myself, because I'm not a supporter of uh, Islamism, uh, I'm not a supporter of Hamas, but the, uh, it's an alibi to some extent, isn't it, that some people reach for uh, to uh, allocate the guilt in this picture to Hamas. Hamas is the best gift that Israel could expect. And therefore, Netanyahu is doing anything possible to strengthen Hamas and to weaken the, the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah. Because would the PA, the Palestinian Authority, be stronger, Netanyahu and other Israelis would have been challenged. Why don't you go for an agreement? Why don't you negotiate with them? But that's exactly what Israel does not want to get into. Hamas is the best solution, because nobody expects Hamas to be a partner for a dialogue, even though, by the way, George, I must tell you, I believe that even Hamas people are reasonable people, and I believe that we could talk to them, we should talk to them, and we could have gotten into a, at least an interim agreement with them. But in any case, you are right. Hamas is a gift for Israel. Another of the new characteristics of this particular episode, relatively new, uh, is the ugliness we have seen inside Israel itself in places like Haifa and Akka uh, and Jaffa. Uh, we have seen violence against the Arab citizens of Israel in the wake of these horrific events. Yeah, that, this is really the new development which bothers the Israelis much more, I believe, than what's happening with Gaza, because this is in our direct backyard. I mean, Jaffa, as you remember, George, is like 10 minutes away from Tel Aviv. And, and this is inside Israel. And it's not only about the violence toward the Israeli-Palestinians. They also took some violent measures. It is almost on the eve of, of a civil war. We are not there, by all means not. But the threat is in the air. It can deteriorate into a civil war, and everyone here is very scared of it. Does anyone have an alternative political program uh, that is finding any kind of audience? Or, I mean, I saw Mr. Gantz, who was Mr. Netanyahu's opponent, uh, promising that Gaza will burn, making the point you made earlier that actually it's not all down to uh, any particular uh, venality of Netanyahu. Is anyone? I mean, once upon a time there was. I, when I lived in Shankin Street, uh, uh, near to Dizengoff Square, there were all kinds of people 
who had an alternative program for negotiation, for settlement, have they all disappeared? Are you the last man standing? I'm not the last one, but there are very few who still believe in any kind of settlement with the Palestinians. There is no peace camp in Israel anymore. There is a very clear majority which supports the continuance of the occupation, which supports Jewish superiority. And I'm not talking about a majority of 60%. I'm talking about 90, 95% of the Jewish population in this country are speaking in the same voice and therefore, the chances for any kind of settlement in, in the short run are really nil, zero, don't exist. And I suppose, and they'd be correct if they uh, were making this assumption, uh, the neighboring Arab countries, indeed the Arab, country, Arab countries in general, the, the, it turns out the Arabs have got a league, it's very much a minor league, but... The Arab League has completely failed to rise to the occasion. Only Russia actually has tried to uh, make the Security Council intervene in this situation and demand a ceasefire. So there's no Arab factor, is there? Unfortunately not, but it's not new. The Palestinians are more lonely today than ever before. They really, I mean, I don't remember a stage in which nobody cares about their fate as today. Western Europe lost interest. I mean, it's all about lip services. We don't bother to speak about the United States who never cared about the Palestinian problem. And they are really left alone. The Arab world really betrayed them again and again. And, you know, from lip services, and even Russia, I must tell you, George, we have to realize that it's not time for condemnations anymore. It's not time for talkings anymore, because Israel learned to ignore all of them. It's time for actions. And I don't see anyone, anyone, including not Russia, and for sure not the United States, is ready to take measures, is ready to take actions toward the Israeli aggression. And how is your work received? I mean, to many people watching, as well as intense admiration and respect, will be some kind of fear uh, for you, that you speak in this way, you write in this way. What space is available to you, Gideon? Look, I'm privileged enough to be a Jewish journalist in Israel and that's a privilege in Israel, because being Jewish and being Israeli means that I am a privileged part of the society. And therefore, I mean, there were times in which I even, as you remember, had bodyguards, mm -hmm. but it's not the case now. I feel very secure. I feel very free to raise my voice. Not that there are many platforms where I can do it, but in my newspaper, for example, in Haaretz, I have a total freedom and support, not only freedom, but also support to raise my voice. But, you know, it is such a lonely voice that it's almost meaningless.
If I could, I would speak to Rania Kalek every week, a kind of diary uh, on the Middle East in the way we do with the US and with Britain. I can't, but I did interview her at least once, maybe twice last year. Here was some of the best of it. Uh, Rania, uh, our condolences first and foremost. Uh, Lebanon lost a lot of blood, a lot of people, a lot of uh, damage of all kinds, uh, including to its political infrastructure. But let's start with the human impact first. First of all, tell us what it was like. Well, George, first I want to say congratulations on the new baby. Thank I'm very you. excited that you had Thank such a you. great week. And yes, it's been a rough week for Lebanon. Um, I was there when the explosion took place, and it's one of the most terrifying, it is the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. Uh, luckily, I came out uninjured. Um, it was like an earthquake. The windows blew open. Um, and then, you know, there's this big loud sound. Uh, but I was one of the lucky ones. Um, almost every single person I know has an injury. Uh, like uh, over 150 people have, have were found dead. And just surveying the damage and the aftermath, you know, I, I toured the city after this took place and walked around. And I mean, you know, no building, no restaurant, no hotel, uh, no storefront was left untouched by this explosion and the pressure that it created across the city. Uh, it, I mean, the, the level of devastation was so widespread. You know, I've been to Syria. I've been to Iraq. I've seen devastation from from war, but it's the kind of devastation that takes, you know, takes place gradually, one street at a time, right? One neighborhood at a time. This was an entire city, just, you know, destruction, as though there had been war there for years, but in a matter of a few minutes. Now, uh when you look at that devastation and when you look at the video, uh, several angles now, what's your thought about what could possibly have created such an explosion, such an inferno? Well, it seems to be the case. I mean, people close to Hezbollah believe this, Lebanese general security has come to this conclusion. And the more information that comes out, the more it seems that this was a case of just utter incompetence by a completely dysfunctional uh, state, which Lebanon has always been, that left this fertilizer, massive amounts of it, sitting in very uh, improper and dangerous conditions for six years until a fryer broke out at the port and it exploded. Um, you know, we knew there was a fire at the port about 20, 25 minutes before the ammonium nitrate uh, caught on fire. So it was a fire that started in a different part of the port near the ammonium nitrate, and then the ammonium nitrate caught on fire. We know that over the last six years, there have been several complaints and warnings about this material being stored in this way. Um, and so it does seem to have been an accident of epic proportions. Uh, that said, and in the aftermath of this accident, there are political factions that are allied with the Americans inside Lebanon that are trying to manipulate the situation to put the blame on Hezbollah, which is completely absurd. Um, and, you know, of course, the U.S. is encouraging this. I've covered the demonstrations that started taking place in Lebanon next, last year in October due to the economic collapse. There's a lot of legitimate anger in the streets 
people who are angry at the ruling elite uh, then and now. But there's also rioting taking place. And there's also manipulations by particular political factions trying to take advantage of the situation to try to push against their political rivals, in this case, Hezbollah. So that we, we need to be very clear about that because the narrative that we see developing, particularly in the Western media, uh, is this was Hezbollah's fault, which is absolutely untrue. This was the fault of the entire Lebanese power structure, of which Hezbollah plays one part, but that includes several political parties, the most corrupt and uh, and, and at fault of which are actually the ones that are allied with the Americans. Yes, I made that point earlier. Uh, undoubtedly, there is rampant corruption in Lebanese uh, government. There always has been. There is in all Arab countries, uh, including the Arab countries uh, closest to the West. Uh, but the politicians most corrupt in Lebanon have always been the politicians most close to the West. A hundred percent. You know, this economic collapse, the deterioration of Lebanon's economy is the fault of of people like the Hariri family, uh, which is close to Saudi Arabia and the West. Uh, Riyad Salemi, who's head of the central bank in Lebanon and actually engineered this entire Ponzi scheme economy that came crashing down, as it ultimately always would, is basically a puppet of the Americans. Um, the people that are the most corrupt in Lebanon are the ones who are always causing the most problems. And unfortunately, we don't get the right picture of that in the West because everything that happens in Lebanon is always portrayed through the lens of how can we make Hezbollah look bad, right? Because Hezbollah is, you know, an enemy of Israel. It's, it's an ally of Iran. America does not like Hezbollah. They call them a terrorist group. So everything that happens in Lebanon is always viewed in that lens in the West. And it's just wrong. Um, Lebanon is a very polarized place, but the Lebanese that end up getting attention in the Western press end up being people who are allied with these pro-American parties. And the, and the situation is much more complicated and complex and nuanced than that. Well, uh, in, my, uh, in my monologue at the beginning, I was making some, I hope, salient points. Um, if we had proper democracy in Lebanon, uh, then, of course, Hezbollah would have an overwhelming majority in the Lebanese parliament, and Hassan Nasrallah would be the president. Uh, <laughs> it's possible, uh, yeah. Uh, and it, it's only because Hezbollah doesn't want to take power in Lebanon, because it wants to keep the sectarian, fragile sectarian balance, uh, so that the Christians can always have the president so that the Sunnis can always have the premiership. So this is a bit of a handicap to Western propagandists, isn't it? Because they yeah. can't demand democracy in Lebanon because democracy would give them uh, the result they least want. Exactly. And even in this system that we have, Hezbollah does win a large amount of seats in parliament because Hezbollah has a huge constituency. And they have a huge constituency because they are well respected in their community because they're seen as protectors. They're seen as protectors against the Israelis 
who occupied southern Lebanon in a brutal, like a brutal occupation, just like they do to Palestine for dec for years. Uh, and the only reason that Israel no longer occupies southern Lebanon is because Hezbollah kicked them out um, with force. Uh, Hezbollah also played a very significant role it, with uh, the arming and funding of jihadist groups in Syria. They, those groups tried to make their way into Lebanon, including ISIS, as well as the uh, litany of American-backed, uh, you know, rev so-called, you know, revolutionary rebel groups that actually were jihadist groups allied with al-Qaeda. These groups tried to make their way into Lebanon, and the only reason they didn't make it to Beirut is because of Hezbollah. <laughs> That's the only reason. I mean, Hezbollah's existence is to protect the borders and the sovereignty of Lebanon. That's how they perceive themselves and their community perceives them that way. So that's why they have popularity within particularly the Shia community in Lebanon. Um, but of course, there's a lot of propaganda in Lebanon. There's other political factions that view everything through a sectarian lens and despise Hezbollah because those are their political rivals who are allied with the Saudis, who are allied with the Americans. And so it's, it's really important that people understand that when you do read news about Lebanon, uh, you need to take everything with a grain of salt because it's it's being filtered through a Western press that has a very, uh, a very um, nefarious agenda about what they want to happen there. Now we've uh, we've both seen many times the protests and demonstrations and so on around the governmental buildings, the Parliament building in downtown Beirut. But yesterday's seemed of a, a more serious order. Uh, they were able to break into several ministries. Uh, can the current government of Lebanon survive? And if it were to fall, uh, what would be the, uh, the uh, successor government? How is so this I do going wanna... to break? So I do want to be clear about the protests that took place yesterday. There was, of course, that those protests were multifaceted. There was people who were angry because they lost their homes because of the explosion, because of the corruption. And of course, there was also rioters who were sent in there with an agenda that belonged to certain political factions. And then there was also people who are poor and were using it as an opportunity to, you know, loot what they could because they got they have nothing. Um, so that's important to to recognize. But as for the government, I mean, this government is was always a temporary government that was very weak, that came about last year after the government of Saad Hariri basically resigned in the aftermath of the October 17th protests. Um, and so, you know, this government is now under extreme pressure because of the explosions, but not just the explosion. The explosion came on top of this economic crisis that was causing a almost overnight deterioration in living standards in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon went from being a pretty middle-class, uh, well-off, decent country for a lot of people to having power cuts that last 20 hours a day, uh, to having an unemployment rate that's you know skyrocketing, expected to reach 50% by the end of the year. Uh, not just because of COVID-19, though that's a part of it, but also because of the economic collapse. Um, so this government resigning was sort of always inevitable. It was just a matter of time of when they would end up resigning. And the explosion was just so severe and catastrophic. It's caused that. Now, the you have these mass resignations and calls for new elect, new parliamentary elections. But the thing is, Lebanon, like you mentioned earlier, it's it has a governmental system that's set up based on sect. It allocates power based on sect. And because of that, Lebanon is always going to have people who are voting for their sect leaders. And so the same people, the same, uh, the same power structures continue to be elected in Lebanon because of the way the system is set up. As long as it's set up by sect, you're going to continue to have the same people 
maybe maybe different names and different faces, but the same, ultimately the same elites being in charge of the country. So as long as that stays the same, Lebanon's going to stay the same. Lebanon's going to continue to be a place where, you know, legalized theft and bribery and corruption uh, destroys everything. And until that changes, you're not going to see a real change no matter what government takes power. Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, Rania, um, the infantilism uh, on display from some quarters uh, in Lebanon when President Macron arrived, uh, the cry that France is our mother and uh, even some asking for uh, a renewal of the French mandate uh, over Lebanon. How far does that go? Surely not far. <laughs> so I think it's, I just want to note that it's, it's interesting to me that Macron cannot walk around parts of France without being booed. Uh, but he can At come to places booed. like Lebanon and be cheered, right? Yeah. Um, in the aftermath of a desperate explosion. But it also, you know, the, the areas of Beirut that were impacted the hardest because of their proximity to the port are areas that are Christian areas. Um, that are the constituency in those areas is allied with parties like the Lebanese forces and like the Kataib party, which are right-wing Christian parties that are allied with the U.S. and are essentially like pro-Israel parties. Um, and so the people in these areas speak French. They have a very, um, not all of them, but there is a colonial legacy and mentality because Lebanon was initially supposed to, thought of when they carved up the Middle East as being France's little like Christian you know, island and a sea of Muslims, if you will. And so there are people who view themselves as Christians in Lebanon as sort of like French culturally. They even speak French. They go to French schools. So the area Macron was touring is an area where France and the French are viewed in a, in a very, and the colonial legacy of France is viewed in a very positive light. It certainly does not reflect the views across Lebanon at all. Powerful stuff as was our poll, an almost record 4,217 on Twitter alone. If you add the Telegram channel and the YouTube numbers, I'm sure that figure will be over 5,000 people in less than two hours voted 89% that the BBC license fee wasn't worth it in 2021. Only 11% thought that it was. Duncan says, I don't have a license, haven't had for years. I'd love to be able to watch non-BBC live TV if I could, but I won't break the law and I won't fund the BBC in its existing form. So there we are. Robert Sharples, though, says it's well worth the money at 43 pence per day. You get 40 local radio stations, eight national stations, eight TV stations, the brilliant BBC World Service, and the superb BBC iPlayer, BBC website. And look at the viewing figures over Christmas. The BBC programs held eight out of the top 10 positions. That's signed <laughs> a BBC employee. Uh, Adrian Pickering says, insufficient new material, shows, etc., biased political reporting, overpaid presenters and executives. Richard G.J. says it cost me about the same as my Netflix subscription and a lot less than Sky Sports. Tell me about it, my good wife sitting right next to me. Uh, but I watch and listen to BBC TV and radio 
a lot more than these two. I don't. I go immediately either to the sport on BT or on Sky or to Netflix, I'm sorry to say. Uh, J-Note says BBC4 music documentaries alone are worth the fee. Well, if you like that sort of thing. Espresso Drink says every year they drag out Attenborough with an animal program and harp on about how wonderful they are. I like Attenborough, but I hate their lazy attitude towards program making, mostly soaps, antiques, cooking, and game shows. Well, we quite like antique shows, but we don't watch them on the BBC. Now, coming ahead, we've got the singing Scotsman, Kenny, who was one of the great finds of the year, and Andrew Lowney, who was one of the most successful guests of the year. My interview with him uh, about Blunt, my interview with him about uh, the, uh, the um, Edwina Mountbatten and Lord Mountbatten were internet sensations. Uh, but does anybody remember Edwin Poots? I'm not joking. Edward Poots was, for what seemed like five minutes, the leader of an important British political party, which very briefly held the balance of power in the state. Edwin who? He was gone before you learned how to say his name, and I have to keep looking at it even now. I can't quite remember it. We spoke to another of our great experts from the University of Liverpool, John Tong, about Edwin Poots and the future of the DUP. Is it a record, Professor, 21 days in power? It's almost a record, and it is a record for Northern Irish politics. 504 hours in the job was all that Edwin Poots was given. Uh, as you indicated in your introduction, George, it was a, a mistake uh, for Edwin Poots to be elected leader of the DUP. The better choice would have been Sir Geoffrey Donaldson with more political acumen. And it may well be now, ironically, that the, the runner-up in a two-horse race, Geoffrey Donaldson, becomes leader of the DUP. In terms of where it went wrong for Edwin Poots, he, uh, when he got rid of Arlene Foster as DUP leader in what was a, a pretty brutal uh, political assassination, then you have to have a new First Minister of Northern Ireland. So Edwin Poots had to nominate his friend, Paul Gibbon, as new First Minister of Northern Ireland uh, last week. But when you do that in Northern Ireland, a, a new Deputy First Minister has to be nominated at the same time. Sinn Féin has the right to nominate the Deputy First Minister, and Sinn Féin's price for supporting the DUP's choice of Paul Gibbon was to demand implementation of Irish language provision, which was agreed 15 years ago, re-agreed uh, at the beginning of last year, and Sinn Féin said, look, this has to be now implemented, and the British government agreed that it would be implemented if Stormont wasn't going to do it by October of this year. The problem was that Poots did not sign that off with his party. He agreed this. His party said, oh, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're not having this. And by nine o'clock the same evening, Poots was gone um, as leader after a mere three weeks in charge. And now, obviously, the DUP is quickly to appoint a new leader. And what you've got in place in Northern Ireland is a first minister, Paul Given, who does not have the confidence of his own party. And they want him to resign as first minister as soon as a new party leader is sorted out. 
by any metric, that is a real dog's breakfast. Uh, let's uh, examine it more closely. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, if he now becomes by default uh, the leader of the DUP, is of course a Westminster MP. I sat with him for many years, travelled many places in his company, know him quite well. Uh, he'll have to nominate one of his friends for First Minister. And it won't presumably be the one that Mr. Poot nominated. So who might that be? Correct. Paul Gibbon would not be Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's first choice as First Minister. He wouldn't be his second choice and probably not his third choice either. Uh, the only thing he might consider is to try and reunite the DUP, which is tearing itself apart in not just a civil war, but civil wars. Uh, you could keep Paul Gibbon on just to try and reunite the party, but I think that's unlikely. And, you know, it's not a party that is awash with talent that you can impose uh, as First Minister. So I think he'll be scratching his head. He'll be desperate to try and uh, come back from Westminster, go from Westminster to Stormont. And that means someone standing aside so that Geoffrey Donaldson can have a, a safe berth in Northern Ireland and then put himself in as First Minister. But in the meantime, yeah, he, he has to find someone. And there's no name that jumps out. It was even rumoured at one point that Arlene Foster could be reinstated. But I think that's really unlikely. I suspect she's probably off to the House of Lords. But you wouldn't completely rule it out now, given that this is, you know, a, it's almost pay-per-view stuff, this. It's, it's uh, such a falling apart of a party in, in such dramatic circumstances. Well, as Oscar Wilde said on the death scene in Little Nell, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. But I don't suppose it's a laughing matter over there. No, it's not, because it is a volatile time for Northern Ireland and Stormont is teetering on collapse. And you might think, well, when is it not a, a volatile time in Northern Ireland and when is Stormont not on the verge of collapse? Because it has been collapsed 40% of the time since powers were devolved after the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, powers were given in December 1999. It's chronically unstable, the power sharing uh, arrangement at Stormont. But, you know, these are dangerous times because loyalists... You know, we're rioting only in April, only a couple of months ago. There was serious disorder uh, in Belfast. They haven't got a political outlet at the moment because of the DUP meltdown. Um, the DB, DUP also being blamed for the, the trade border uh, in the Irish Sea that has divided Great Britain and Northern Ireland in economic terms. So loyalist politics are, are very, very volatile. They're in a real state of flux and there's no clear political outlet uh, for those protests. That's what makes this situation dangerous in one sense. Uh, and the other is that the future of power sharing in Northern Ireland, you know, that's the centerpiece of the Good Friday Agreement. There is a section, I think, of, of the DUP that is thinking about walking away from power sharing. If there was to be an election tomorrow, and there has to be an assembly election by next May anyway, the DUP will lose the first ministership crown to Sinn Féin. And the question begged from that is, would the DUP come back into the institutions, the other side of an election, operating in reduced circumstances, would they accept uh, a nomination for deputy first ministership? Because remember, the DUP only went into power sharing really with Sinn Féin when Ian Paisley could be first minister. If the DUP can't have that prize, they might walk away. And if you don't have the largest parties from both sides in the institutions, those institutions are potentially about to topple over. Now, sometimes it's wise to say, well, so what? So tell us, so what? Uh, if the power-sharing executive were to collapse, direct rule from Westminster, 
uh, would, would have to take its place. What's wrong with that? You could argue that there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it would be more satisfactory, given you've had direct rule by default in recent years, because, because of the lack of agreement between the parties on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has legislated directly. There has, Westminster has passed legislation that legalised abortion uh, and legalised same-sex marriage. Brandon Lewis, the current Secretary of State, said uh, only this week that he would legislate to introduce Irish language provision. Uh, you also had the protocol. The Assembly doesn't really have much of a say. It has a vote in 2024 on whether to overturn the, the protocol, that border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but it had no say in its implementation. So you might argue you've got direct rule by default uh, anyway. The argument against that, well, it's twofold. One is, obviously, if you're a nationalist, uh, wanting a united Ireland, why would you want direct rule from Westminster? It's anathema to you. The second argument is the public opinion argument that if you look, successive surveys of the population of Northern Ireland have suggested, do suggest very strongly, that they do want devolved power sharing to carry on, albeit on their community's terms. You know, there aren't many takers for direct rule. It never exceeds more than 20% when you do these public opinion surveys in Northern Ireland. It's, it's not a big preference. And, you know, direct rule, who, who would really thinks that direct rule in the 70s, 80s and 90s in Northern Ireland was highly successful? It, it wasn't. You had three decades of trouble. So of the trouble. So, you know, for all devolved power sharing's faults, you can argue it's the least bad option. Now, the proximate cause was the Irish Language Act issue, but that can't really be the underlying point because as you say, this was agreed and then agreed again uh, and agreed just earlier this year. Uh, so what's it really all about, Professor? I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which Irish language provision does polarise the electorate. Uh, less than 10% of unionists say that they want uh, Irish language provision, whereas more than 90% of nationalists say they do want it. But I would agree with you, there are bigger issues. At the heart of this, relations between the DUP and Sinn Féin are toxic. They always are. Sinn Féin argue that the DUP is trying to deny basic rights, whether it be everything from same-sex marriage through to, uh, through to Irish language. The DUP, and some to the right of the DUP, the traditional unionist voice, which only has one seat in the Assembly, but is to the right of the DUP, they would argue Look, Sinn Féin, ultimately, they're all about creating instability in Northern Ireland because ultimately, and it's no secret to anyone, they want a united Ireland and therefore they're quite happy to see Stormont ultimately uh, be dysfunctional because it's about unity. I mean, both of those arguments, it depends on your, on your political perspective as to how much you buy into them. I mean, what we do know is obviously the constitutional question was re-arisen uh, by Brexit. I don't think it ever really went away, though. Um, and at some point, at some time unspecified, there is likely to be a border poll, a constitutional referendum as to whether Northern Ireland should reunite with the Republic, whether there should be a, a united island. We don't know when that'll be. It's up to the Secretary of State. Only he can decide when a referendum takes place based upon it, the, the criteria, according to the Good Friday Agreement, is when he thinks that, that it's possible, or likely, I should say, that there will be a majority vote in favour of a united Ireland within Northern Ireland. I don't think we're there yet, although there are some signs that support for a united Ireland is on the up, is on the increase within Northern Ireland. But it's in the Secretary of State's gift, and the criteria are not crystal clear as to when he should call that referendum.
Now, in the latest opinion polls out of Dublin, uh, Sinn Féin are now miles ahead of the other parties. And you just said that it's quite likely that if the Northern uh, Irish Assembly elections go ahead uh, in, what, nine months from now or so, uh, yeah. that Sinn Féin will also win those. Looked at from, you know, the man from the moon, uh, that would seem to indicate ineluctable progress towards reunification. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, if Sinn Féin become the largest party in the South uh, and dominate the, the government down there, they probably have to work in coalition uh, uh, as part of that government. And if Sinn Féin is the largest party in the North and Sinn Féin's providing the first ministry in the North, then first of all, that's a, a big psychological and political defeat for unionism in the North. And secondly, it does increase, as you suggest, the pressure for that border poll because Sinn Féin has demonstrated its popularity and Sinn Féin's project, we all know what Sinn Féin's ultimate project is, it is uh, Irish unification. Now, how long the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland can resist that pressure, I think is open to question in that scenario. I certainly think that Sinn Féin will become the largest party uh, in Northern Ireland. I think the, the, the beauty for nationalists is that they could afford to lose a first border poll um, as long as it's close because under the terms of the Friday Agreement, it's not like the Scottish situation where people, you know, there's arguments as to when, if ever, a second referendum should be held. The criteria is clearer for Northern Ireland. A, a second, another referendum can be held. It doesn't have to be, but it can be held every seven years thereafter. So potentially you could lose the first, but eventually get unification over the line. As I say, I still think there's some way to travel. You're not getting units waking up every in the morning and thinking, you know what, I'm an Irish nationalist now. That isn't happening. But there are units who, who or people who would have been units once upon a time, who are becoming constitutional agnostics at least. They're moving into the centre and they would contemplate or accept a United Ireland in a way that would have been impossible only half a generation ago. That's where the change is happening. And also in terms of the demographics, they're against unionism. The nationalist population is rising. There's also been that growth uh, in the centre ground. So the Unionist parties are fishing in an ever shrinking electoral reservoir. It's going to need a very, very strong and adept DUP leader or a, a leader of unionism more broadly to actually turn that round. What are the Republicans, the nationalists, Sinn Féin, what are they doing to, uh, as it were, persuade uh, people who are in the unionist community. Um, I mean, I, I'm, they talked about this project for a new Ireland and so on. I'm not close enough to it to know uh, if that's had any effect. But I mean, if I was running the campaign for reunification in Ireland, I think I'd be trying harder to assuage the concerns of the unionist community who are still, at minimum, many hundreds of thousands of people uh, who have rights and who have traditions, some of which we'll see uh, marching on the streets this month, next month. Absolutely. There hasn't been enough discussion as to what a United Ireland would look like. And if you're going to have a constitutional referendum, then I think you know, the public, whether you be unionist, nationalist or neither, they're entitled to know what the structures of Irish unity uh, would consist of. There's a difficult 
debate here within unionism as to what to do about this. Some unionists, including the former DUP leader, Peter Robinson, have suggested that unionists should engage in constitutional conversations with nationalists to discuss what a united Ireland would look like. Robinson thinking that, that unionists can still win a border poll, but sh they should engage in, in those discussions. Other unionist leaders have been very reluctant. In fact, they refuse to do so because they argue, look, it's discussing the surrender terms um, as far as we're concerned. Why should we discuss the dissolution of our own country? So there's an ongoing debate within unionism. Nationalists do want unionists to engage in these discussions um, because you need to know, for example, whether there would be devolution for the North under unification, in which Stormont would remain uh, and allow unionist expression of their uh, their British identity within within United Ireland. I don't think there's any point in pretending as well that United Ireland would feel anything other than a defeat for unionists, because by definition, the union is severed. You can't avoid that. So I think what's been interesting as well this week is that Leo Varadkar, who's never really pushed the Irish unity agenda as, as leader of, of Fine Gael, he was talking about his desire for Irish unity this week and hopes that it's a project that will be completed in his lifetime. Neil Martin, the current T-shirt, he has uh, created a shared island unit, which has sort of very gently discussed the, uh, the idea of Irish unity, but hasn't really uh, advanced discussion of it. And then, of course, the Sinn Féin, which is pushing for a border poll, and it always pushes for Irish unity. Unionists are often reluctant to engage with Sinn Féin because of Sinn Féin's past. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, to some extent, it's a pan-nationalist project now to try and get Irish unification, but it's one that unionists are reluctant, many unionists are reluctant to engage with. They'd rather the whole idea would just go away. Andrew Lowney's not really a funny man. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, but he is a brilliant historian and a brave one, ready to take on all comers for the right to get access to archives that we need to know about and which are being maintained, by the way, at our expense. One of those was on Anthony Blunt, a subject of enduring interest in Britain, certainly to me, and I think I'm not alone. This was Andrew Lowney. If you wouldn't mind starting with Blunt, as it's his anniversary, uh, why did the state wait so long to out him? Why didn't they out him when they found him? Or alternatively, why out him at all? Well, it's very good to be back with you. Um, the line from Harold Macmillan was, when my gamekeeper finds a fox, dead fox, he doesn't bring it into the house, he buries it in the garden. Uh, and that was the approach that they took to all the Cambridge spies. The fact is that none of the five actually, in a sense, paid for their crimes. They were either given immunity or allowed to escape. Uh, the only one who, who was actually sent to prison was George Blake, and that was because he didn't go to the right school. So um, this is their default position. Uh, far, more, far better to sort of sweep the thing under the carpet. It was highly embarrassing to, to, in terms of their relations with the Americans. Uh, and, uh, frankly, a public relations disaster. They'd have really let uh, Klaus Fuchs, um, uh, in a sense, get away. Um, uh, or, or when they, so there are a whole series of, of uh, things going on, and, and the British, frankly, didn't want this thing to become a public scandal. Uh, it was fine for the Russians and the British Secret Service to know about it, but they didn't want the British public to know about it. Why then did Mrs Thatcher make the statement she did? all those years ago, but all those years later, 
after because they had she outed him. Wasn't an establishment figure. I think she was appalled when she discovered that he had been given immunity in 1963. Uh, but also, her hand was forced. The fact is that various people had begun to talk to uh, a man who was writing a book called The Climate of Treason. Uh, there was stuff appearing in Private Eye. Blunt, though he hadn't been named, uh, had been, uh, in fact, knew that he'd been rumbled and was beginning to take legal action or threatening legal action. So the story basically was out. She had no choice um, but to do something. But I think she was appalled when she discovered what had been going on, because for her, these were traitors. And the situation goes on, as you say. Uh, I, I don't think there's an eighth man. I think there are about 20, 30 men. Uh, and I continue to make my, my uh, attempts to uncover this uh, and, again, have problems with the government trying to shut it down. There's a vetting file for a man who I believe was part of the ring, who continued to work until the 1970s, which they're refusing uh, to release. So this is a problem that's gone on for a long time. It continues to go on. There was a cover-up in 1951 when Burgess and McLean fled to the Soviet Union, uh, and, and nothing has changed in the intervening 70 years. Now, Blunt was uh, a very important figure in the early days of the Cambridge Ring. Uh, he had a certain seniority and gravitas, and his particular favourite was the man that you wrote so magnificently about, Guy Burgess. Uh, tell us about that relationship, if you will. Well, the first to be recruited was Kim Philby, who was sent back to basically recruit his chums from Cambridge. The, the, the Russians had decided that um, they would have this sort of deep penetration mall approach where they would pick bright young undergraduates from the best universities. They would go into deep cover into the civil service or the foreign office or um, spy, spy, MI5 and MI6 uh, and journalism. Uh, and then they would be activated many years later. And Philby did that. He went back and he produced a list of five with Donald McLean at the top uh, and Guy Burgess at the bottom. Now, we don't know who the other names were. So numbers two, three and four may have been may have refused or they may have been recruited and we don't know about them. Uh, and they were slightly nervous about Burgess. But McLean accepted immediately. This was in 1935. Burgess was very indiscreet and that's not normally a characteristic of spies. But he sort of got to hear about it and he thought it was rather exciting and they had to basically let him in. And one of the pluses for him was that he was gay at a time when, of course, it was illegal. He had to lead, lead his life covertly. And that, of course, is a perfect a cover for a spy. Uh, and uh, so Burgess was recruited. I think many others were recruited because the Russians numbered their recruits and there are huge gaps uh, between the ones that we know were recruited when they were recruited and other figures. I think there were people like Leo Long, and Michael Strait and Leo uh, and Alistair Watson, who were also recruited at this time. Now, Blunt was recruited because he was the lover of Burgess. McLean had also been the lover of, of Burgess. So there was a sort of psycho, there was a sexual element to this as well. Uh, and Blunt, of course, as you say, became very important because he had close links to the royal family. Uh, he was much older than them. Um, and he was able to get into MI5 at the beginning of the war. Burgess had got Philby into MI6, where he, in fact, had been working since the mid-30s. So he is a much more important figure than we realised, because he got these people into the intelligence services, and he was the first to be working for the intelligence services himself. Uh, it says something about how poor the records were, that Blunt, uh, on one day, received a letter saying, you're a communist and we don't want you, by MI5, and also on the same day saying, you speak German and we'd love to have you. 
Uh, so he ignored one letter and just um, uh, joined Acted him up on the other, yeah. Well, uh, he was an educated man. He did the uh, obvious thing in those circumstances. Um, talking of educated men, what was it that motivated these highly educated, some cases quite brilliant men? Blunt was a very brilliant man in his field. Uh, even Burgess had moments of brilliance. Uh, what was it that uh, drew them together and made them adhere uh, to the Soviet uh, cause in the mid-1930s? Well, you're right. They were all brilliant. They all had first-class degrees. They were all clearly going to the top, which is why they were approached. Uh, they all knew each other, which is why we talk about the Cambridge spy ring. They were all direct contemporaries at Cambridge within a few colleges. And they were recruited for a mixture of reasons or joined uh, the Soviet Union. They were, looking, they were looking for some sort of purpose in their life. So there was a very strong personal element in it to it. There was a certain sense of uh, le bourgeoisie and getting back at the establishment. They'd failed, the old generation failed them. They'd seen the problems, uh, economic problems and the need for the national government in, in the early 1930s. They felt politically that the only people standing up to the fascists were the communists and they were a bulwark against them. Uh, and they were recruited in a very sophisticated way by the Russians who used Central Europeans who were multilingual, uh, who often were um, highly educated, uh, and they seemed very attractive father figures. And I think many of the Cambridge spies had lost their fathers. Burgess at the age of 13, Maclean uh, again, uh, I think, at university, uh, Blunt, Philby's father had been absent, uh, and Blunt's father died again when he was quite young. So these, these people, in a sense, became figures of authority and direction to these uh, slightly aimless uh, people who felt, like Burgess, that perhaps his talents hadn't been recognised and that they could make some sort of impact on the world. Burgess, when he left Cambridge, though he had this first-class degree, basically failed at a whole series of jobs. Uh, failed to get into the Times, he failed to um, uh, stay on at Cambridge uh, and do a doctorate and, and become a don. And so the Russians gave them, uh, in some ways, um, uh, an identity which they, they felt they lacked. The uh, three that ran away to Moscow uh, lived uh, uh, quite quixotic uh, lives. Philby uh, later ending up with Maclean's wife. Uh, Burgess, I recall vividly, an interview with Canadian television, which had laid buried for decades, describing himself in cut glass English uh, as a, a non-party Bolshevik. Uh, he remained loyal. Uh, it seems, to the ideology that he had joined. And uh, Philby, of course, uh, who lived the longest of the three, um, when asked by Philip Knightley, uh, one of his biographers, uh, uh, if, uh, if he had, uh, uh, did he have any regrets at losing his faith? He insisted that he had kept his faith, meaning his faith in the Soviet Union and in the ideology uh, that prevailed there. Um, that would not seem to suggest aimlessness, Andrew. Uh, it would seem to suggest fairly solid commitment. Well, I mean, uh, Philby, for example, was so unhappy in the Soviet Union, he tried to commit suicide, and they all turned to drink. There was nothing much else in the Soviet Union. So what they said in public didn't necessarily reflect what they felt in private. But you're right, there is a certain something to admire. They, they, they picked their team early on and they stuck with it. Uh, and 
um, they never actually went back on that. They were Burgess, though he had abandoned, I mean, his mother, his friends, the things that really counted, like the Reform Club, at a very early age. I mean, he was 50 when he, he went to Russia. Um, he never had any regrets, though you get a very poignant picture in Alan Bennett's play, An Englishman Abroad, of, of him there. Um, McLean, I think, was the one who settled in most. His family were with him. And even though there was the betrayal of his wife leaving him for Philby, he, uh, in some ways, had been the most politicised of them. Uh, and he, though he didn't believe in Stalinism, and of course, they didn't come to Moscow until Stalin was dead, uh, he actually believed in perestroika. He sort of adapted, and they all did. They were chameleons. They've adapted all their life, and they justified it for themselves because, of course, if they had admitted to themselves that they got it wrong, they would have realised their lives were a complete waste. Which begs the question, then, uh, did Blunt feel the same way whilst he was uh, discussing with Her Majesty the Queen uh, her pictures? Well, there's that wonderful uh, partner play, The Question of Attribution by Alan Bennett, in which he and the Queen are having a uh, conversation about truth and, and the pictures. And we all know and that, 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 in fact, they know, too, that um, he's a spy. Uh, the Queen, I, I, I'm sure, was briefed very early on um, that he was a spy. I mean, he was suspected even from 1951. So even when he basically confessed in 1963, that was the, the end of a period of long suspicion. I think the feeling was that if he hadn't been given the job in the, in the palace, it would have sent out a signal to the Russians that he had been blown. And I think one of the things the British felt is that they could sometimes play material back to the Russians if they didn't know that their agents had been caught. Um, but yes, of course, the, 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 there is this extraordinary irony about uh, Blunt staying within the establishment. They were all complete hypocrites in terms of the way they operated. Uh, and... Um, he, in some ways, was the one who managed to get out. He refused to flee in 1951, though he helped arrange the, the escape of McLean and Burgess. Uh, he uh, was able to go back to his career as an academic, uh, and uh, though he helped them in some ways, uh, his role as, uh, was, was most important during the war when he worked in MI5. Don't forget to download that podcast now. It's 110 countries and charting in, I think, dozens of countries. And number one in Zimbabwe, which is something I'm unusually proud of. Now, Lewis MacLeod is a very funny man. He's a very brilliant impressionist, even when he's making a fool of me. But I started by asking him if impressionists were not, well, a little old-fashioned. I'm getting plenty of work thanks to you, Gigi, with that incredible voice that you have, <laughs> where you can shout to the heavens and then come down to this part here, which is wonderful. You are an impressionist's dream, Gigi, with your platitudes. I love it. Yeah, there's, there's loads platitudes of... Platitudes are platitudes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's wonderful to speak to you, Gigi, yet again. I, it's just great. The the um, the shows that we do, like uh, Dead Ringers, we rely on the writers, and it's and and that allows us uh, to focus on the the voice that we're doing that week. And of course, it changes, and they're always looking for um, new characters. And I think that's the sad thing now that there's just not enough. Ah, 
there's Good not point. enough characters like yourself. I mean, if Good you look point. at you, you know, with with I mean, as I say, you could write sketches around. You're great in a sketch however the caricature is and i'm sure you've heard many of them and you've got a great sense of humor to be able to, <laughs> to have me on and been impersonating you a lot of them don't like it you know but the and people like uh, you know you've got uh, nigel you know no 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 let me speak you know that was one of the things about nigel i sort of made a rod for my own back with him because of course he speaks so quickly <laughs> and he sort of laughs as he's talking and you know so whenever i was reading a script from nigel it was always about 200 miles an hour so i couldn't even keep up with <laughs> With my own impersonation of him, but uh, <laughs> and he's know, chucked it, it now, Lewis. What's that? He's chucked it now. He's out of politics. Uh, You're no, right. I mean, the big characters are are fading away. Yeah, I mean, the, there's well, you know, the, we've got two Boris Johnsons on Dead Ringers. We've got John Culshaw who impersonates uh, good Boris, and then you have me doing the fofa he he wa. I'd like to say, what? Joculance. I, I, I want an award for services to Scotland. I mean, I, I, I have, I, I've got a great team. Look at me, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, politician of the year. Uh, the year being 1802. You know, with the, with the exception of got Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, that sort of thing that he does. Again, you can mimic him. There's just not very many others. You know, Keir Starmer was quite difficult to do. In, well, he's a blocky uh, wood. <laughs> how, how do you impersonate a blocky wood? <laughs> I know. Well, and Corbyn was difficult, but the hardest one of them all was Cameron. And I know Rory Bremner well, and uh, and John Culshaw and I obviously worked together a lot. And we were all going, oh yeah, Cameron and Duncan Wisby, who's brilliant on Dead Ringers. He he got the voice uh, down on, that. but he was a hard one to do. And so it depends if there if there's something that we can capture in their voice, you go for that. Yeah. But really. It's, it's, it's thin on the ground at the moment, you know, there's no... Well, speaking of thin on the ground, what about Big Alex Salmon? Can you do him? Uh, well, do you know, actually, I'll be honest with you, that uh, if he doesn't say with, he says with. I've got to be honest with you there, uh, George. I heard you earlier wanting to... You've, the, the gauntlet has been thrown down, and I would look forward to a debate with you. I was on, I actually did Trump last night. I've got the full wig on for a thing that they were doing, entertaining as Trump. <laughs> this wow. is what happens, you see, because, you know, you've got, I've got so many friends that are curious to know, well, what, where are you, what side are you going to be on? And, of course, being in Scotland now, thanks to the pandemic, I'm sort of enmeshed in this kind of the, the world. It's, it's, it, the political debate goes on. And being in London, you've got ringers and then the spitting image, it came back. But Salmon, we did him on Newsoids. He actually had a puppet of him. And uh, he was another great character. <laughs> we used to do him a week and a sing song every time he spoke. Oh, hi, there we go. Hi. But uh, I can't wait to see you and he together. I mean, Gigi, that's going to be... That's going to be a, a heavyweight championship, definitely. Oh, well, and Andrew Neil, come on. I mean, he was another one. See, he's Andrew Neil. I did him on his show. He's got an elephant's eye, Gigi. He looks at you like that, you know. <laughs> and we were sitting opposite, and uh, th there was a, oh, forgive me, I can't remember her name, but she was, they queued up a VT, and while it was on, he clocked me in the corner because she was going across the seat going, do his voice, do his voice. And he did this thing, he came out of the item, he must have only had about 40 seconds, managed to do the calculation that we could get this voice on and went, Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Now, there's a, listen, Lewis, there's a very big American audience right now uh, yes. listening and, and watching. Uh, yes. It would be remiss not to do Trump because they're yeah, all missing him. Whether they loved him or hated him, they're yeah. certainly missing him. 
You know, I'm born on the 4th of July, Gigi, and uh, I've got, you know, a strong affinity with America. I love them very much. My, my cousins, my, my cousin Heather Menzies, Yurik, she was in The Sound of Music. She played Louisa. God oh. rest her, she passed away and married Robert Yurik, who was Dan Tana in Vegas, Spencer for Hire. So I was going over to the States and, and that life, I just loved being around them. But the political side of it, oddly, I sort of found myself impersonating... You know, it started with uh, I got Bill. You know, I did, I did not. Then it became, you know, became George W. There is no such word in France as entrepreneur. <laughs> then we had Obama. We are fighting the flames of despair with the cooling waters of hope and courage, fanned by the winds of truth. And then you've got the Donald. You know, and it's a very thank you for you know. I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate. Great, and I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there. You know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. Now I've got a massive handicap. I wear my pubic hair on my head, but <laughs> I, I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis, look at that. What's more than, more Scottish than that? Me, I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where I'm going to go in Scotland? I might come over and buy up some more land, you know? Wind turbines, Alec. Uh. <laughs> but is Joe Biden just too boring to do? Well, it's, you know, the, the thing about Biden is it takes a while for them to bed in, George. And, you know, you've got this thing about the Enbridge 3. Enbridge 3, that's scary. I mean, that's going to go off. You know, it's the pipeline. But it, there is this difficult to find something that you can hang your hat on with him, you know? Apart from the way he walks, the voice takes a while to bed in. And it's just, you know, as you say, you know, you can't, where am I? What day is it today? You know, there's a little bit of that going on. There's something about Trump. When he was, you know, I used to do his voice and I think I sounded more like, oddly, like Alec Baldwin in the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross. I sort of did him. Since so you're talking about what? You're bitching about that sale you shot? You know, but then, of course, when he sat down and he did an interview with, you know, Barbara Walters and he started talking very sincerely, I'm the only guy for the jab. I, I realized, I thought, oh, wait a minute, if he wins this, this is the guy that we're going to see more of. He's going to be the quiet, sincere Trump. And I thought, this, I could give this a go. Because the stadium guy, it's like he's got another set of pipes. He's got another voice. It's, yeah, it's really, it's a big voice. But when he's talking sincerely, you know, it's it's a much easier for me. It just slotted into that that note a little easier for me, so I could do him, you know. And it's it's just been there. But hey, he's going to come back, isn't he? I mean, it's not oh, for sure. Uh, unless they shoot him, uh, he'll be he'll be back. Uh, yeah. I've got no doubt uh, about that. Now you mentioned Spitting Image having been back. Yeah. Uh, it w it wasn't a rip roaring success. Uh, I, I was quite friendly with the guy that did it, uh, Matt Ford, so I, I hate to say this, but, uh, and I didn't actually see much of it, but it, it got pretty poor reviews. What did you think of it? Well, I thought it was good. I mean, I thought beautifully filmed. The writing was good. The, the, I think because, it, I, I mean, BritBox is yet another platform to play these shows, and 
it's it's like you know was it just one too many pl platforms for it to come on i mean i think from all uh, from what i heard and the figures are, are the, the holy grail for that ggs you know uh it stormed it on youtube oh did it, it, it oh i i mean it, the the figures were great but i think you know there were there were i looked at the thread these things are they're not they're kind of arbitrary as you know but the the reviews for it i saw were good i mean the there was an enthusiasm for it coming back definitely uh, I, I've, I've been part of that iteration that you know the new spitting image now three times so there's a sort of hiatus of maybe five to eight years and then they bring it back and they actually brought back spitting image so of course the press were were all over it and i suppose it's that thing you know it's like the star wars franchise coming back there's going to be real scrutineers wanting to see if it's going to meet up to the standard of what happened in the 80s and 90s with with the show but i think they did a, a really good job of it i think it worked i would have been i mean i would have loved to have gotten trump and 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 wow, Boris, because I was playing them on dead ringers, you know, and there's there were a few people that said, Oh, well, you know, we like your Trump. It's a subjective thing anyway. There is as many people say, Well, we like the other guy doing it, or whoever it is that's playing them. And this well, is I've this never is met thing. anybody that could do it like you. Uh, uh, oh, you say you've got plenty of work. How, how I mean, do you can people book you for? For weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs oh, yeah, and I mean, so on. Yeah, I mean, I was I, I was a sort of latecomer to the whole corporate thing because um, there's the, the master Rory doing it, you know, and Rory's fantastic. And but it was a, it was a slow burn for me at the start, and then it started to become really busy doing Trump because I got this phenomenal wig from a company called Alex Rouse who do you know Benedict Cumberbatch and period dramas and things like that and so I've now got a head bust on a shelf this wig is sensational and so when actually when I put the whole thing on I was geez in profile I, I really looked like him <laughs> and um I, I started getting slowly started getting bookings in this you know from yeah the Dorchester to the to the hydro up the road, you know, so well, that's it, good. Well, I'm glad that you're busy. Oh, there it is there. Look, www.lewismacleod.com. Uh, if you've got a few, Bob, and he's not cheap. Um, he was cheap tonight, but uh, generally <laughs> speaking, free. he's not cheap. <laughs> Please uh, uh, book up. He's absolutely the funniest guy I've ever met. The time I've spent in his company has been time with tears rolling down oh, my cheeks, I must say. Yeah, that's very kind. You know, we, we I've still got memories of the, you know, the speak up that we, we managed to get you through BBC, <laughs> BBC Alba, which uh, Alec now owns, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, or Alipa, BBC Alipa, there's a lot of people call me a right Alipa, but however, uh, you, I, now, I, there, I, I wanted there, to know. A, there's a point, well, um, not to put too fine a point on it, you are a chukta. Uh you, how do you pronounce Alba? Well, you know, you know, Donald Trump thought Alba made vintage radios in the UK. You know, it's a very strange thing. But uh, there's, well, I I'm told it's Alapa. Oh, yeah? That's, I, I think that's the, you know, hey, listen, my Gaelic's not great. You know, Cod, Miley and Faulty, I thought were in Banana Rama. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I'm told it's Alapa. But... <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I just wait with bated breath to hear your pronunciation of Alapa when you sit for a square go with Alec. All ladies beware, apparently, uh, it's an acronym for. <laughs> I think he's absolutely brilliant. And if I had the money, if I could afford them, I'd be right now 
dialinglewismcleod.com for, well, I can't have any more weddings. I'm, I'm, I'm married out. and um, But we might renew our vows on the 10th anniversary. Maybe we'll book Lewis for that. From one funny Scotsman to another. Now, Kenny from Acton started out as a, he was lying to get on the show, pretending he wanted to speak about this and that, only to break into Elvis songs as soon as it seemed appropriate. I banned him, I, I, I cursed him, but actually he's become something of a cult. Here's why. Yes. And George, do you know something else? You're not going to sing again, I... are you? No, 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 no. For the last time you spoke to me, you ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. Well, you ain't you never have... caught a rabbit. You ain't, ain't no, no friend, friend of mine. You've actually got a great voice, Kenny and Acton. You can come back. When Elvis returned to live... Concerts in 1968 for the first time in seven years. It was a fabulous concert, fabulous. Yeah, the 1968 comeback special. What were his first words as he sat down as a nervous wreck on stage with He was nervous, uh, but I don't recall his first words. Tell me. Was it A, thank you very much, it's great to be back. B, it's been a long time coming, honey. Or C, are we on television? (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to say C. You're correct. He said C. Are we on television? And then he went, we're going up. We're going down. We're going up, down, down, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudy. Kenny, thank you. You're always a great turn. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, which cartoon series featured this? Song. You better look all your toes today, cause Abu Hassan is on his way. I'm out gunning, so start a running from me and my forty thieves. Was it A? <laughs> of course. Was it A? The Flintstones, B, Popeye, or C, The Simpsons? Well, the only person in here that can answer that is James Giles. James, do you know? I'm afraid I don't, George, actually. I, I'm, Kenny will have to enlighten I'm leaning us. to the Simpsons. Go ahead. No, it was actually Popeye, Abu Hassan and the 40 Thieves. I've never heard of it. Uh, I remember. Popeye the sailor guy. man, he lives in a caravan. Then something yeah. about eat your spinach. <laughs> because oh, no, no, he no, eats no, his no. spinach. He's Popeye the sailor man. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You said you would follow me back on Twitter if I posted that photograph of you I never and saw I. It. I never saw it. Did oh, you post on, it? Man, Did you post it? Yes, on Twitter. Look, oh, many times. My my account, my Twitter account name is Kenny Given, and I'll post it right now. Okay. All right, I'll deal with it on the oh. way home. Thank you, Kenny. I keep getting fooled by the geographical location. Kenny is sometimes of Acton, sometimes of London, sometimes of West London. And it turns out it's Elvis every time. Also, do you remember when I phoned up to talk about the trans issue, but I got cut off after I started singing because I never asked your permission first and you thought I was a nutter? Go ahead. Give me yeah. some bars. 
Well, the song that I was going to sing was actually an Elvis song. It's called Stranger in the Crowd, and I'd like to sing it now if that's okay with you. Go ahead, Kenny. Okay. I was standing on the corner at a quarter after seven. I was down to my last cigarette and the clock in the window at a quarter to eleven. I was watching all the people passing by me going places. Just the loneliest guy in the town. Looking for a friendly smile, but all that I could see were faces. And then, just like the taste of milk and honey, I found the stranger I'd been looking for. Bravo! Absolutely brilliant, Kenny. Absolutely brilliant. One singer, one song. I've got the mic now. Uh, um, an unexpected ending to what I hope you'll agree has been a fine show. A star is born. Uh, Dave in London says, Starmer looks scared and incapable of initiating a strategic coup on the Tories at a time when they're on the ropes. Beyond Chains says, Chipboard looks exciting compared to Sir Keir Starmer. Chipboard, also known as particle board, is an engineered sheet wood made from small wood chippings bound together by a synthetic resin. Crikey, you sound like Sirkia. And Asdrain says, more talented than you anyway. That's for sure. Thanks, mate. Chewy Chewbarker says he's a ventriloquist dummy. Traditionally, this type of puppet has been made from paper mâché or wood. In modern times, other materials are often employed, including fiberglass, reinforced resins, urethanes, filled, filled rigid latex, the mind boggles, uh, neoprene, and leaders of the Labour Party. Tweet of the night, Chewy. And E says, I suspect he's a bit of both. Wood, 74%. Some other recyclable material, 26%. He is the satirical definition of monotone. And Douglas Solomon says, how about too poisonous to be recycled? Alex Sampson says, it's maddening watching the liberal press hype him up as a kind of centrist messiah. And W. Whitbread says, wood is recyclable. So is Merd. Uh, Jane Ginger says, how was he ever a barrister? and Director of Public Prosecutions. It's beyond me. You and me both, Jane. And Mr. Nice Guy says he's a spineless coward. Uh, JP says the multi-millionaire London barrister, Sir Keir Starmer, the hope of the working man. Doesn't sound right to me. And Simon Johnson says he's Pinocchio to Peter Mandelson's Geppetto. So wooden. He picked up a plank the other day and gave it a splinter. Well, it's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. Next week, it's the new year. I wish you all a very happy one. But I will be back next Sunday in London for a proper, fully live show with live guests and live telephone calls. It's back to business as usual next Sunday. It's been marvellous. 
to have your company over all of these months and these now hundreds of episodes. That goes for all tens of millions of you. Good night. We asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation, then please subscribe so you can listen to Moats anywhere, anytime from every corner of the earth. It's the distilled version of this show, shorn of all the peripheral material, just pure moats, 90 minutes instead of three hours. So if you do it and you love it, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.